Welcome to episode 29 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast, joined as always by my co-host, the woman who puts the F in Fraulein Siegel, Mary Fincher. <laughs> I am only Darren Weeks. Hello, Mary. How are you doing this fine evening? You're not only Darren Weeks, and tonight you're well, you know, Earl Van Darren. I got to live to that reputation, I think. Earl Van Darren rides again tonight, does he? Ooh, he certainly does. Certainly (laughs) does. In the saddle. In the saddle, Mary. (laughs) Yeah, so how are you? What's going on? It's been such a long time since we talked last. Yes, it has, hasn't it? Well, we're finally into March, which means we can drink again. So we should probably kick the episode off with that. That's a good idea. You can can start. We'll go by shortness first. You go first. (laughs) fucker i am drinking out of my i got a new mug which should arrive last week it is sherman staff and it has oo howard on it so there is my oo reference for this episode but it also has jefferson c davis on it and he is actually going to be in this episode tonight and i am drinking hazy sunset from bayfield brewing company which is about 15 minutes away from godrich okay and i am drinking a beer called what's up homeboy new england pale ale and I'm drinking it out of my North Civil War Champions mug because I don't have anything for P. Ridge nor anything for Jefferson C. Davis, but they did win the battle. I don't want to spoil the ending, but they did win the battle. So therefore, I'm going with the champion mug. So there we go. There I got it. Doesn't that like kind of lead into the fact, though, that there should be more about P. Ridge? Well, that's a good point. You know, we were talking about some ideas back deep in the bowels of, of Civil War Breakfast Club World Headquarters one day, Mary. <laughs> we were talking about some ideas. And when we talk about P. Ridge... Not to be confused with Bee Ridge, which is much more serious, but we don't want to get into that. It's been almost a year since the Battle of Bee Ridge. Battle of Bee Ridge. Very, very sad. I still have the pictures. Colorized. I do. Colorized pictures. Yeah. When you went after Robert E. B. I fought the B and the B1. <laughs> but you're, you're right, though. Pea Ridge, or also known as Battle of Elkhorn Tavern, is a very important battle that took place in March of 1862 back in the Trans-Mississippi area, which does not get enough credit, really any credit. Now, the Trans-Mississippi is probably the most underappreciated theater, I would say, Mary. You know, there's no Grant, there's no Lee, there's no Stonewall Jackson. So there's no, even though there's a lot of colorful people in this battle, mm-hmm. it seems to get the shit end of the stick by a lot of people. And I've always thought P-Ridge is a great battle, and, and this will be a fun podcast to talk about it, because I think a lot of people don't really study it. No, I know, and I would agree with you, they don't. Um... And sometimes, too, you get people that will say, oh, well, Trans-Mississippi Theater, it just gets lumped into the Western Theater, which I think there does need to be like a bit of a distinction. Like there's some there's quite a few battles that happen in this theater of the war, P. Ridge being one of them and their early battles in the war. And yeah, there's not like what you would consider the quote unquote colorful characters of like that we know better, like Stonewall Jackson or General Lee or whoever. But there's still some really cool people here that are cool to like cool to learn about. They're interesting. And it's also where some of these people got their early starts, like Franz Siegel. You know, this is probably his greatest moment. Spoiler alert, in the Civil War is here. Earl Van Dorn is here. But you have men like Curtis, McCullough, McIntosh, you know, that all this factors into the story of the Civil War. And P. Ridge is something that definitely, I think, is kind of a lead up to the Battle of Shiloh. Like it is happening in between... Fort Henry and Donaldson, which we discussed a couple weeks ago on the podcast. It's happening on March 7th and 8th, 1862. A month later, the Battle of Shiloh happens. Well, I think Missouri, I mean, people are like, well, why? why? Who cares, right? Well, Missouri was one of the border states. was an independent state. And we'll talk about where it leads into this whole thing with Missouri. So this whole thing was about who controlled it. It was an independent state, like I said. It had delegates both in the Confederate and the Northern Congress. Their governor was a guy named Claiborne Jackson, who was a hardcore secessionist. I mean, he just was, capital S. 
a lot of it was who was going to control that state, very much like Maryland, very much like Kentucky. It was a very important state. So you have to kind of go back a little bit before we get into Pea Ridge to talk about how they kind of got where they got, right? So go back to August 1861, the Battle of Wilson's Creek, another battle that no one cares about, Mary, by the way. Well, it was um, fought on a very interesting date, August the 10th. August 10th, the second greatest day in the calendar after November 25th. That's okay. <laughs> So August 10th, 1861, Battle of Wilson's Creek, basically it was a fight over Missouri and the rebels won, right? It kind of led to a lot of leadership changes on both sides. So Halleck, basically, this is this is going back to, well, we were talking a few weeks ago about the campaign with, with Henry, with Donaldson. Who's going to control those rivers, the Tennessee River and the Mississippi River, that whole area? And this goes back to that. So Halleck wants to do is he wants to consolidate his forces in Cairo, Illinois, because he wants to keep the Rebs out of Kentucky, the other big border state. And so all those crucial waterways, and, and that's kind of where it goes back to, you know, fast forward a little bit to Christmas of 1861. Halleck's going to promote a guy named, that we're going to talk a lot about tonight, named Brigadier General Samuel Curtis from New York, Mary, West Point, class of 1831. Big railroad guy. He helped build the state railroads in St. Louis. He ends up being a congressman from Iowa. He brings in Curtis because he. this is after Wilson's Creek. So Wilson's Creek ends. The Rebs basically can control Missouri at this mm -hmm. point. Halleck wants to have, he wants to bring in Curtis, almost like with Grant, the same kind of game plan. I'm going to bring you in Curtis for the simple purpose of destroying the Rebs in Missouri, this thing called the Missouri State Guard. Take control of the state, beat them, take them to the ass factory, whatever you want to call it, okay? <laughs> this way, if the state's under control, Halleck can finally take some of those troops out of Missouri and bring them into Cairo mm -hmm. to help that other area. But he doesn't want to just do it because if he does, the Rebs are going to take the whole state. He wants to keep that state down. Another interesting thing about Curtis is he was considered for a cabinet position with Abraham Lincoln. He was. But he had already been appointed a colonel in the 2nd Iowa, Iowa, if I could say the state properly, infantry by that point. I can't talk today. I yes. can't. No. I well, what's new? Dry February ends and you forget the language. That works. <laughs> I wasn't doing very yeah. good when I wasn't drinking yeah. either. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> um, but, but also, the, the Rebs are going through some changes in leadership. They bring in a guy named Sterling Price. Okay, Sterling Price, a Virginian. He's going to be in charge. He's going to basically be the guy who's going to be up in Missouri. But he's nervous because he knows the, the feds are going to get it. Going back real quick to the, the union changes. So I mentioned before how Samuel Curtis is going to be in charge of that area. That will ultimately be, be changing their names here in a minute. We'll talk about that. But one guy who was up for it who didn't get it is your guy, Fran Siegel. Yeah, now, Fran it's funny Siegel. because he, because he's pissed that he doesn't get the gig. Now, he's very loyal among the Germans in Missouri and all that. But he's also the guy who took off after the Battle of Wilson's Creek and never told anybody. He leaves without telling any of his superior officers. And then he honestly wonders why Halleck doesn't pick him. Siegel, that's not going to be the first time he does something like that. And, but he's very popular among, you know, the Germans. German immigrants, and he was able to recruit a lot of them into the army at the beginning of the Civil War. His military experience is all gained in Germany, fighting in the the revolution there in 1848. And that's why he left because of the suppression that was happening. And he came over to the U.S. He actually teaches in New York State for a while, and then he eventually moves to St. Louis. He is a politically appointed general as well, appointed by none other than Abraham Lincoln because of Siegel's connections to the German community and his ability to be able to recruit them into the army because at that point and they I've needed numbers. I've heard of Abraham numbers. Lincoln. He sounds, he sounds important. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to write that name down. It's L-I-C-C-O-L-N, right? Okay. He also will eventually command what becomes the 11th Corps and throw kind of another, I don't want to say hissy fit. <laughs> 
okay it is it is a hissy fit and because he does that again because he's like i want to command a bigger core and they're like fuck you you're not going to that's why oh howard comes to command the 11th corps after the battle of fredericksburg but you know what you mentioned the whole hissy fit thing that's also going on in the in, in the website as is, well. Yeah. so you know so sterling price like i said he's a virginian one of his peers is a guy named benjamin mcculloch who we're going to talk a lot about tonight he's a commander of the arkansas army kind of only cares about arkansas that's what his focus is he you know because that he's concerned about the indian areas too but he's a rival for price it's almost like a, when we talked about donaldson with Simon buckner in Gideon Pillow. It's almost like a 2.0 thing. They're yeah. rivals. They compete against each other. It's going to lead to a lot of issues. So what's going on is he's sitting up there in Missouri and he's nervous because he knows that the Union Army is about 50 miles away and he knows they want Missouri back. So he basically is sending telegrams to all these people. I, I, I need help. I need help. And it kind of, it never, they, they never get there for whatever reason. But Jefferson Davis, he knows that he needs someone to control a real guy in that area. Somebody, right? He has this idea that he needs someone to command this trans-Mississippi district, mm-hmm. which is kind of like, it's been kind of, it's just been there, but it's important. The obvious two people are going to be Price or McCulloch. Realistic. That's who they think is going to do it. But here's the problem, Mary. They didn't go to West Point. Jefferson Davis wants a West Point guy. So who does he turn to? He turns to a guy who we're going to talk a lot about tonight named Earl Van Dorn. Do you know who turned the job down before it was given to Earl Van oh, Dorn? Oh, was. Our friend Braxton Bragg turned it down. As well as Henry Heath. Henry Heath turned it down. Can you imagine taking a job that Bragg didn't want? Now, we talk about Bragg a lot, but to just be Braxton Bragg sloppy seconds, Mary? I don't know. But you're not the second. You're the third. Like, like well, Van Dorn's like, the third. So Van Dorn, interesting cat to say the least. I mean, he's from Claiborne, Mississippi. He's got a wicked bad temper and a wicked eye for the ladies, Mary. Apparently a wicked libido. He does. He does, right? He's from West Point as well, class of 1842. Obviously, that's the reason why I got the job. But he graduates to the bottom, 50 seconds out of 68. Does. Which is not, you know, that's, you know, but but he's his, you know, close with the family of Andrew Jackson. He's his great nephew. Um, That's why he he gets the appointment to West Point. So he fights Mexico with the 7th Texas Infantry eventually quits and joins the confederacy uh in january of 1861 so before you know before the war starts so he quits ends up being the brigadier general in the mississippi militia for a little while until eventually he gets a colonelship in the confederate army not too long after that the first confederate cavalry and he ultimately leads all all virginia cavalry there for a little while mary so he's got he's highly thought of he is obviously chosen like we said to, to command this trans mississippi district in january of 1862 and he's basically he's going to take over, and he's going to be sent to a place called Pocahontas, Arkansas, which is a great little place. And he's going to be commanding guys from Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas. Now, here's the thing about Earl Van Dorn, Mary, okay, is he is delusional. Oh, he, he is. is. He's pie in the frigging sky. First thing he does, he gets there. I don't know if he's thinking he's William Wallace or what it is. But he gives this speech, and I'm going to read the quote of it, okay, the speech he gives to his troops. And you can imagine, you know the eye rolls I get from you all the time? Picture the eye rolls that the soldiers get. So this is what he says. He stands in front of his guys, and he says, soldiers, behold, your new leader. He comes to show you the way to glory in a mortal renown. Awake, young men from Arkansas, and arm. Beautiful maidens of Louisiana, smile not on the craven youth who may linger by your hearth when the rude blast of war is sounding in your ears texas chivalry to arms and they're all like what what the hell that's what he says to his guys he sounds okay, he reminds me of that guy the union second manassas is that pope who kind of would have made <laughs> us but that's exactly what it reminds me of 
a lot of these guys have never seen battle before. These are relatively new guys. They're not from the Virginia area. So they're looking at this guy going, what? They sit there and they laugh and laugh and laugh. McCulloch's still sitting up in Richmond. He hasn't made it yet. Davis is going to send along Albert Pike, who's with his Indian Brigade. Uh, and he's going to rename this whole army the Army of the West. One of 16 armies operating in American Civil War. Actually, correction, out of 22, in the 16 Union armies. But basically, that's kind of how it's kind of starting. So we mentioned before with Sterling Price, he's sitting up there in Springfield, Missouri. Mm-hmm. He's, he's seeing the feds about 50 miles away. He's frantically messaging, you know, anybody who will listen. I need help. I need help. They're in a place called Lebanon, Missouri, which is about 50 miles away. They know, and we know now because of how it told uh, Curtis, you got to take Missouri. You got to take it. So they're they're hungry. They're itching for a fight, and he knows it. At the end of the day, no help comes. He ends up having to leave. So on February 13th, 1861, the feds do take Springfield. Almost the same day, by the way, that Van Dorn gets the messages. He finally gets it. Yep. So it must have been mailed from Canada because it took forever <laughs> to get there. But now Sterling Price is on the run. He takes his army and he gets the hell out. He's, he's going to head down towards Arkansas and Curtis is going to chase them. Now, this is the time of year we got to talk a little bit about the weather. Yeah, because it is so, pretty shitty. It's bad weather. It's cold. Your boyfriend's sealed. That's frostbite. Well, this is the um, same type of weather that's happening up with uh, Henry and Donaldson, right? Because this is almost happening at the same time as that. And that was a really rough winter from what we talked about before with Henry and yeah. Donaldson. But these poor dudes are, they're going and they're going and they're, they're running and, and they had, you know, had a you know, little bit here and there. So price basically is being chased down towards Arkansas. They battle here and there at a place called Little Sugar Creek. We'll mm-hmm. talk a lot about here in a little bit. This is on February 17th, 1862, at a place called Dunnigan's Farm. And it's the first battle ever in the state of Arkansas in the Civil War. And the soldiers talk a lot about it. They talk a lot about afterwards, about after the battle. This is the first time these guys have seen battle, a lot of them, right? They've seen the elephant, as they say. And they're talking about how they couldn't dig graves because the ground was too cold. And they had a real tough time, and there was dead horses everywhere. And so it was, it was a tough spot. It just, it just was. McCulloch finally does join Price at Little Sugar Creek. And they both end up marching towards Fayetteville, Arkansas to kind of mm-hmm. game plan a little bit what they're going to do. Yeah. And so what Van Dorn does with his plan is it's a plan to invade Missouri. He wants to capture St. Louis for the Confederates because St. Louis is considered to be a pro-union city. It's also very commercial and industrial. So when I was researching this, I thought, well, it sounds a little bit in a way like Atlanta was for the union to get. So in a way, I think St. Louis is like that. But it's also more for the morale of it as well, right? Like if you capture that city, that's going to be a huge thing, you know, for well, the, for the Confederates. I was very happy when the Red Sox captured St. Louis in 2004, Mary. I'm going to tell you. Okay. And again in 2000, 2013. So I know the feeling. Okay. So he, I know they want it. They had to have it. And they got it. If he gets it, it's not only going to be a huge victory for the Confederates, but Van Dorn sees this as like a victory for himself. Like he, he writes his wife. He's like, he wants to make a reputation and serve my country. I must have St. Louis. Huzzah. That's how he ends his. That's what he says. His, his yeah. letter. I'm like, the fuck? Like, well, you know what's what's funny? They're in Fayetteville, and they're kind of game plan. They're waiting for the, yeah. the, the, the band to get together. So they're sitting in Fayetteville. There's a lot of food in town everywhere, right? But they can't take it with them because they have limited carriages and limited horses and, and animals. So basically, they tell them, eat up, boys, knock yourselves out. And they end up going wild. I mean, there's stories of the streets are covered in flour. There's a story that they were out of firewood, so they had to burn bacon for firewood. Oh, my That's God. Not, that must have smelled awesome, Mary. Bacon it would fire. have smelled awesome. Oh, my God. 
But now you think about later on, they have nothing to eat. And these guys are literally burning bacon. But then it ends up being a complete, as, as things happen, boys be boys, Mary. Things turn turn crazy. They start looting the town. They're taking clothes. And they're taking books. And they're burning warehouses. At the end of the day, Fayetteville gets completely sacked by their own people because they lose control. So Curtis, to your point, he's chasing them from Columbia. And he has a real tough march, too. The weather's the same on both sides. You know, it's, the, it's, it's an equalizer, certainly. And they end up dealing with the cold, the snow, a lot of their animals die of exposure. Finally, he says, the hell with this. We're not going to chase these guys anymore. He sets up his army at Little Sugar Creek. He mm-hmm. just stays there. And so we're going to set up here because I'm chasing. I'm sick of chasing this guy. Let him come get us. But this is ridiculous. So he sets up there. And this is to your point. This is when Van Dorn decides, okay, we think there's somewhere in that area, but we need to be aggressive because he wants to be the hero. He wants to be that guy. For yeah. He had this grandiose feeling of this is my opportunity. And it probably was, you know, that whole speech we talked about before. Yeah. This is his chance to stamp. This is this is my time. So he's going to be aggressive. He's going to take Missouri. He's going to take St. Louis. And then he's, then he's going to join up with his, you know, Albert, Albert City Johnson. Johnson down in Tennessee. And he's going yep. to help continue to kick butt. That's that's his mentality. Good, strong, aggressive attitude to have as, yep. as a commander. But we'll find out as this battle goes on that, um, you know, it's all he's all talk versus all action yeah and curtis set up along little sugar creek is actually a very strong defensive position that he's done so it's actually on march 4th 1862 that van dorn is going to split his army into two divisions one led by price and the other led by mccullough and they end up marching along bentonville detour to get behind curtis and cut his communication like they think they know where he is but not exactly and this is where the bad weather comes in. There's a storm and the Confederates are forced to make a three-day march from Fayetteville through Elm Spring. And there's knee-deep snow drifts in some places. And Van Dorn is actually just coming off an illness and he makes a lot of the march in a wagon because he's got a fever yeah, he, most of the he's time. Got a, he's got a bad fever. Who knows? Yeah. Possibly scarbutic. Who knows, right? <laughs> oh, God, so, I hope not. There's a, lo- and, a lot of stuff going on and, with that, you know. So then on March the 6th, Van Dorn and his 16,000 troops, the Army of the West set out to do counterattacks on the Union at a position near Pea Ridge. That's why the battle's called Battle of Pea Ridge. What a, you know what the one thing, though, he does before before the battle starts? The one thing Van Dorn does do good, though, is he's wise enough to know that he has an issue between McCulloch and Price, yeah. that these guys hate each other. They don't talk. He finally sits them down and says, boys, listen, okay, this is what we're going to do. You guys need to swallow whatever the hell you guys are chewing on and just deal with it. Because here's the plan. He tells them the whole St. Louis plan. He goes, but you guys got to get your stop being just stopped. And, and they seem to get along. I mean, they don't get along, but they seem to temporarily put it aside for them. This is at a time, too, when, when we were talking before about Henry and Donaldson. Morale's not that good, right? So no. everyone's in a bad mood. Forget the weather and everything else like that. Although the smell of bacon's everywhere. That's a benefit right there. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's cold. But, like, it's not yeah, that's what I mean. nice it's cold. to be out when but, it's cold. But they know that, you know, he, he smooths this over with them. Just get them to work together. The plans on paper seems like it's going to make sense. He has that council of war. And it seems like he, they both kind of buy into it. But then they still, but you know what? Though? They still bump heads though. Because, you know, he, he tells them the plan of what he wants to do. And McCullough says, well, let me scout the area first. And let's just see what's up. So he he, he sends a cavalry up to go see what's going on. And they actually bump into Siegel's guys. Yeah, um, Siegel nearly gets captured. Right. The little skirmish they have. But he comes back and he, he says, you know something? 
I've seen the position at Little Sugar Creek, and the position's pretty damn good, to your point. Let's go around their flank completely, enforce Curtis. Very similar to Gettysburg. Yep, you know, it is. Let's go around them, get them out of that position, get them into a vulnerable position where they attack us, and let, let, let's take advantage of that. And Van Dorn says, you know what? I like the idea, but not so fast, my friend. How about this? We're going, I want this. This is going to be a big victory. So I'm going to send a portion around them. And then what we're going to ultimately do is I want to attack them. I want to, I want to attack them hard. And then what we'll do is we're going to box them in, and then they're going to surrender. And McCullough hates the idea, and he uses the quote, he's delusional yeah. to talk about the plan. And he's right. That's really what he's thinking. Price, we mentioned before, hates McCulloch. He agrees with McCulloch on this one. He's like, he's fucking delusional. I mean, this is going to freaking work. He, they, and he says the plan is reckless. But Van Doren goes, you know what? I don't care. I'm not going to listen to either of you people. This is what I want to do. Because he wants to be the hero. So they start their march, to your point, going through the snow, and they're slow and getting up there. He's sitting in the wagon. Ultimately, it's going to be an interesting couple of battles we're going to talk about. Yeah. Right off the bat, you've got command and control issues, really on both sides, but especially the South, which we hear about all the time. Yeah, yeah. And this, it's like we said, you know, with Henry and Donaldson, like... This whole thing with the drama that plays out in the Western theater and the Trans-Mississippi theater as well, it's not something that begins at Chickamauga. It seems to be a thing that runs through the Confederate Army in this area. And you got to wonder, is it to do with who Jeff Davis is appointing? Because he's appointing his friends, for one thing. Like, nobody's really getting along. The one thing, though, to mention that Van Dorn does here that is going to come back and bite him in the ass is the supply trains. He orders them to the rear, and he tells his troops to travel lightly. So three days rations, 40 rounds of ammo, and a blanket. Tents, cooking utensils are to be left behind. And each division, I think, has an ammo train too. But the supply trains and Van Dorn's other problem is when he takes command he doesn't bring in any staff to handle yep. shit like that that he'll find out the hard way in yep. 48 hours you know the union guy curtis i mean he's what's called the u.s army of the southwest mm-hmm. or get that out there right he's a former engineer and he you know he's cautious but he knows the rebs are moving he knows they're coming part of van dorn's plan is he wants to be quiet he wants to be very very quiet you know <laughs> and it doesn't work out because they get seen. He's going to set up at Pea Ridge. Uh, this is Curtis I'm talking about. which is about 30 miles north of Fayetteville. Mm-hmm. That's where it is. And it's a good, strong position. He entrenches along Little Sugar Creek to a point. It's just parallel to that ridge. The right flank is going to rest in a place called Elkhorn Tavern. And we'll talk about that in a second. It's where he's going to have his headquarters. And it's the point where Van Dorn ultimately is going to f- try to hit the flank. Yeah. That's it. Later on, we'll find that's where he's going to be. So... The 6th of March hits and Van Dorn, he realizes, because he, he knows because of the McCulloch Calvary raid, that he can't slip past them. His quiet plan is not going to work. So he knows he's going to fight Curtis now. He says he knows it's going to happen. If I'm going to get to St. Louis, I have, I'm going to have to beat him. That was my plan anyway, but he knows it's, it's going to happen. But he'll use those mountains to screen him. And he's, he's good. he has the high numbers. He's got 16,000 guys versus 11,000 mm-hmm. for Curtis. And he's going to basically, he's going to basically move Peter Osterhaus from Little Sugar Creek, he's going to start him out with one brigade. And what he's going to basically do is he's going to send him up there to go find them and just see what's going on. McCullough has one force in a place called 12 Corner Church, which is the north of the Union line. Yeah. He's going to go find them. Curtis is going to ride. I mean, Osterhaus is going to ride ahead with the cavalry. He's going to be right up front with them. Yeah, with Bussy's with cavalry, right? Colonel Cyrus Bussy, Mary. You, someone did her homework today. I did. This is guys of Missouri and Iowa cavalry, about six, about 600 guys. And so morning rises on the 7th, and that's when the battle really begins in a place called Lee Town. Yeah. So Pea Ridge is actually, it's like 
two different battles happening, but to kind of understand it, you start with Lee Town and what's happening there. And, you know, as you already said, like this is where Osterhaus is headed with Bussy's cavalry. This is where he's been sent by Curtis. Osterhaus is going to encounter McCullough's men at a place called Foster's Farm. And he manages to catch McCullough by surprise. And McCullough is like... I'm supposed to be meeting Van Dorn at Elkhorn Tavern. I don't think that's going to be fucking happening because the union's no. here. He's going to meet Van Dorn mm-hmm. at Elkhorn Tavern because he's got to have some of bad blue with him. He's got some beers. Ew, now, they, God. But that's the plan. They're going to, they want his plan is I'm, I'm having drinks with him. McCulloch has about 7,000 guys. And so they're, they're going from west to east on that road by the Fosses from to your point. Osterhaus, you know, we find out later on specifically at places like Chattanooga. He's, he's an aggressive dude, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is. He's, he's, not, he's, he's, he's he yeah. fought in the same revolution that um, Siegel fights in. Osterhaus yes. is, is a, actually a Prussian. That's where he's yeah. from originally. But he also immigrated right after the revolution as well. He has that quote because I could not hesitate my course of action. He saw the opportunity. Bussy's cavalry. So they, they, they've got three artillery guns. They've got unlimber. First Missouri uh, flying artillery. They catch McCombs division marching right down the road and, and they open up on him and it wipes a lot of the guys out yeah and the thing is too is reading about this part of the battle reminded me of the first day at gettysburg because osterhaus is outnumbered in order for him to get his men together his infantry that's why he's got to send the cavalry in you know it just reminded me so much of the first day at gettysburg with how that had to be done with the cavalry guys you know there's a lot of parallel stuff you know you know so call is actually you know he's quite surprised your point because he's thinking the feds are still entrenched. He doesn't expect to see them, right? Yep. So he sends in Brigadier General to your point, James McIntosh. About 3,000 guys, cavalry guys from Texas, Arkansas, places like that. They're going to charge full speed across that Foster's field. Yep. They're going to charge them with that rebel yell, whooping and yelling. They got axes and carbines. Yep. And- tridents and pistols and everything else they have you know clowns big clowns they get everything <laughs> and so immediately overwhelm the federal guys run right through them yeah they capture those three guns i mentioned those pretty easily from the west here comes a guy named albert pike yeah with right? his cherokees now albert pike is an interesting dude and a million for a million different reasons mm-hmm. he's somebody who as you study these guys going forward he's in charge of the indian brigade so he's he's from boston so you know he's smart right up the bat mary he got accepted to Harvard, but didn't go. We said, nope, whatever reason. But he ends up going to Arkansas, settling down there in the 1830s. He becomes a news reporter for a little while. Then he becomes an attorney. He's a poet for a little while. He's kind of done a little bit mm-hmm. of everything. While he's an attorney, he represents a lot of local Indian tribes down there. Yeah, at all levels and that's of court. Right, and that's where he gets to know a lot of them. You know, he's a very big Freemason. We'll talk about this. Uh-huh. He's the sovereign grand commander of the Scottish Rite in 1859. According to Freemasons, if you know anyone, you should let me know. But, <laughs> but he's still to this day a very immensely popular Freemason for a lot of the stuff he does. He's got a statue in Washington, D.C., not far from Meads, right near the Capitol. Yep. And he's you know? mentioned in National Treasure, too, as well. It's a true story. Good movie. I'll let you know. You know, buried in D.C. at the Scottish Rite. Yep. He's somebody who was in charge of these Indians. And so he orders this, this group called the Cherokee Rifles to attack. And this is the first and second Cherokee mounted rifles. They're on horseback and they're on foot. And these guys are bad dudes. They ambush this third Iowa cavalry. They've killed a lot of these guys. They're scalped. They're mutilated. I mean, they're just yep. bad yeah, that, that's that, something that, that doesn't stuff. get mentioned at a lot of places about this battle is just how brutal this is. And like, apparently, like, it's, I think it's men from Iowa, right? That they're going after? Is it Iowa? Third Iowa, yeah. Yeah. Just that the ratio of who was dead versus wounded was really out of whack, apparently. So what happened is they did kill some of the wounded men, apparently. 
Like this is they a very killed, brutal attack. They killed the mutilated ones. They scalped them. They cut them up. Yeah. They did a lot of stuff. So the feds, what do they do? Like they do what you and I would do. You run like friggin' hell, yeah. which is what they did. They fall back to the trees in a mass panic. I mean, yeah. you can't, they're undermanned already. They go back to a place called Overson's Field. Osterhouse is in infantry is kind of moving forward at this time yep and these guys come running past them they're, they're yelling turn back turn back they're going to kill all everybody and run and so they're like what are you talking about and so basically there's a guy named nicholas grusel from, yeah from, you read my mind i was just about to <laughs> mention from, his from quote so, so, well you can you go ahead you can tell the story yeah, he's a he's a he's a good story yeah so, he's a, he's gonna he, she'll tell you about a really really good quote i think i know the quote you're talking about yeah. about how he stabilizes that line yeah, so his men are like, this is after these guys are coming running back and saying, like, don't go. It, it's horrible. He says, officers and men, you have it in your power to make or prevent another bull run. I want every man to stand his post. And this is what Grusel says to his men before they fight. And at the mention of bull run, they realize that they can't have this battle be another bull run. So because of his speech, he's able to rally his men and they go forward. And just remember, Osterhaus is outnumbered. Yeah, you know? and Osterhaus, to your point, he arrives right at this very moment. He shows up. And what does he see? He sees Grussell calmly directing the troops. He, re- he puts in his post-battle report that to Curtis, he says that the Grussell's men stood without flinching. So he gets a lot of PR. A lot of guys don't know mm-hmm. Nicholas Grussell. He's someone who really helped stabilize what was would have been a complete and utter rout. So McCulloch's thinking this is an easy victory, right? Yep. But it's going to turn into a mess. And a lot of that's because of what Grussell's guys do. Yeah, and McCullough also decides to take a little ride into the woods. So he does. He has a little little walk around in the woods. So Osterhaus, he shows up. He's got 1,600 guys, guys from the 36th Illinois, who have a big part of this, 12 Missouri, 22nd Independent Ohio bound battery. He's sending these urgent messages, again, to Curtis back at reinforcement saying, send help, send help. We need help. He's going to basically take his 1,600 guys and he's going to hold out as long as he can. He's just Let's just find a place. Let's hold out. McCulloch's got 7,000 guys. So the numbers right off the bat aren't good. And the numbers mm-hmm. aren't good for the Union in this entire battle, really. But, no. but basically, he is going to set up and he's going to hold out until reinforcements arrive. At this point, Bussy's cavalry is completely shit cannon. They're, they're a mess. Yeah. I mean, you know what? Justifiably sake, but you've got 7,000 guys plus four batteries of artillery for the Rebs up against Osterhaus's 1,600 guys, because that's all he's really got. They start representing themselves pretty well. They start firing on these guys, because infantry is always going to be ahead of cavalry in a lot of cases. Pike's guys, those Indians get pushed back pretty quick. They kind of push them right out of the way. But he forces McCulloch to have that fight with that force that he doesn't want to have, because he wants to get to Elkhorn Tavern, right? Because yep. he knows that, that Van Dorn's waiting for him. We'll find out later how bad he wants him. Now he's going to deal with these guys, and he doesn't want to. McCullough, so he, he's a former Texas Ranger, Barry. Yeah, uh, not a baseball player like Albert, you know, like, <laughs> like Doubleday was. He, this is a different, different Texas Rangers. In case you're curious, he's going to ready his men, and he's going to basically get ready for an assault. We're here. We're going to fight. We're going to have to fight at Oberson's Fields. He's thinking it's going to take an hour. We'll take it. These guys yep. done in an hour. Push right through these guys. Go get that Labatt's blue we talked about and be done. He's got nine regiments of infantry under a guy named Colonel Lewis Haybear from Louisville, uh, Louisiana. 
Louisiana. Easy for me to say. <laughs> Louisiana? Um, uh, Louisiana, yeah. <laughs> Arkansas and Texas guys for the most part. So he's going to form a battle line. And the thing about it is there's so many regiments and there's so few leadership, he's got to split them up. He's going to take Haybear's fleet, split them into two, four and five. So four regiments are going to go on the left, and five are going to go on the right. Now, Haybear is going to control the four on the left. And then McCullough himself is going to control the five on the right. That's just because you can't be everywhere. So he's going to have to split them up. McCullough is going to make a huge mistake that you alluded to a little yeah. while ago. Because he's going to decide to personally reconnoiter the Union line, go through the woods before he attacks to see what's up. Yeah, which was a habit he picked up from being a Texas Ranger that he was accustomed to doing personal reconnaissance. So he thought, oh, I'm going to do that here. So as you said, he goes to reconnoiter, which is what he tells his men. And he just said, you boys remain here. And then he adds, with your gray horses, you might get shot. So he's in the woods, doesn't realize that there's some Union troops nearby, and he ends up being shot through the heart, I think. And so he's out on the front lines, just like somebody else is going to be less than a month later. Yeah. At Shiloh, funny Albert works, Sidney uh, Johnson. Johnson. Um, so just picture, you picture the regiment. You're the guys, you know, from the 36 Illinois. That's who the, these guys he's going to run into. He's riding out there all by himself in his suit, going through the woods on a horse, coming right at him. The guy who's going to get blamed for shooting him is a guy named Peter Pelican. He shoots McCullough through the shot through the heart. No idea if he gave love a bad name. Who knows? <laughs> That's exactly. That <But>, <laughs> just something jumps in your head. But the thing about it is nobody in the rebel line saw McCulloch fall because no. he was by himself, right? So for over an hour, okay, they're standing around doing nothing, kind of like you with a liquor store an hour before they open. You're there just hanging out. But they're standing around with, and they don't have, they just, they're idle, right? His time is ticking, right? And he never comes back, obviously. He just, they think he just vanished. Ultimately, guys in the 16th Arkansas will find his body about later on that day. But James McIntosh, the cavalry guy from earlier, he's going to assume command and he's going to order a general assault. He's yeah. going to say, let's, let's, let's go. So he rides ahead with the 2nd Arkansas, which was his old regiment, ironically, the old Mount DeMonster rifles. And who does he run into again? The 3rd Illinois, the 36th yeah. Illinois Grissel's guys. And guess what happens to him? He gets shot as well, less than 200 <laughs> yards from where McCullough had been shot. The other thing that happens too is when they find out that McCullough is dead, McIntosh says, don't tell anybody. That's exactly what Beauregard is going to say less than a month later at Shiloh. Don't tell anybody Johnson's been killed because for morale. So nobody they can know learn. that McCullough has been killed. So then when McIntosh goes down, nobody knows again. And by that Same point, deal. it's Hebert who command should you know pass to that's not going to happen and this thing becomes more of a clusterfuck now it, it does and and so the decimal color and mcintosh are going to basically stall everything for a while most of them didn't start to move anyway to be mm -hmm. honest but the red they all stood around those who did primarily the second the 16th arkansas rifles they fell back but to your point they didn't know what the hell was going on i mean mcintosh ends up getting killed about 200 yards away from mcdonough right it's not too far away so a bear's wing that four wings on the other side i mentioned so this is the five that McDonald was in charge. The other side of the road, you have Hebert's guys, 4th, 14th, 15th Arkansas, and the 3rd Louisiana. You got about 2,000 guys. You still got a pretty good force. They're in the woods. He's the next obvious ranking officer. He's the one who's going to take over. But he's sitting around, too, and he's waiting for McCullough. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's go. So he finally says, I'm not hearing from them. He hears some rifle on the right-hand side. He goes, well, some fire going on. We better do something. Let's go. So they start moving ahead, and they start moving through the, the Morgan's Woods, which yeah. is thick wood area they couldn't see it was thick you know basically what they're doing is they don't realize it but they're marching straight into Osterhaus's right flank yeah and guess who's and arrived 
to reinforce that Jefferson C. Davis. Jefferson C. General Davis Reb has up. arrived. He does. He, so he, he shows up with his 1,400 guys in the third division. And because he, he gets those, that frenetic request we talked about, mm-hmm. he, the, you know, the help, he answers the phone and, and he gets it. So we're talking guy, the 1822nd Deanna, guys like Thomas Pettison's guys, the guy named Julius White, 37th and 59th Illinois, we'll talk about here in a few minutes. And he has batteries as well, but they're going to show up just in time. Do you know what, while they're marching, to the site, band was playing Call Me Maybe. <laughs> no, was they, they were playing Dixie. Were they playing it on but violin? They were. They were. No, they were playing uh, the Oshhaus's band for whatever reason was playing Dixie. I know, I read that and I laughed. I yeah. was like, what the hell? Like... <laughs> you know, it might have been Call Me, who knows? But they arrived at Morgan's Woods on the east side and they're going to extend that line right in front of Hay Bear's Path. So they're going to end up basically sending those two whites divisions I talked about before, the 37th and 59th Illinois, into the woods. And they're going to be sending them directly into a collision course with those four infantry regiments I mentioned from Hay Bear. So picture you're going one side of the woods and this other group coming again straight ahead and you don't know what's coming. So you know where this is going right off the bat. Yeah, you know? it's not good. So, it's in- not good. So they're going to literally bump into each other. They're going to crash right into each other. This going to lead to a huge fire fight point blank range behind trees Aber's numbers finally begin you know he has more he's got four against two so he's going to push yeah, him back pushes them back but then the smoke starts to get in the way he well, bears gets disoriented in all the smoke he does you've got a hundred guys in the third louisiana and the fourth arkansas get spun around and lost in the woods they end up veering off to the right they stumble right into battery a that independent Illinois light artillery, mm-hmm. which is kind of on the south side of Overson's fields. So they kind of, they, they, I don't know how the hell they ended up there, but they, that's where they ended up. And there's a guy named William Black. I went to high school with the William Black, not the same guy. He's from the 37th Illinois. Well, I knew you were old weeks, but. Anyway, so um, <laughs> so William Black from the 37th Illinois. This is an interesting story about this one. So he's going to sting. These guns are in trouble because he's got a hundred guys coming at these guns. He's going to stand in front of the guns with a Colt repeating rifle, Rambo style, and just start firing and protecting the guns. He's going to hold them off single-handedly for a while. Eventually, he's going to get hurt. He's going to get the Medal of Honor for this. Mm -hmm. But the Rebs do push forward. But he basically, out of all the six total guns, Black ends up saving four of them because he stalls them that long. So they only lose two guns. One guy. I could have saved all of them. But I don't know. Osterhaus, so basically, his 36th Illinois and 12th Missouri, they're going to arrive from the Union left, Overson's Field, and they're going to push those Rebs out. They're going to get the, they're going to get the guns, save them back, and Haber's guys are ultimately going to fall back into the woods. And Jefferson Davis, to your point, is going to kind of take over a little bit at this point. Yeah. And what happens eventually, though, is Haber and Mitchell, they end up getting captured. They do. And they do. that they... is when it completely, where they are at uh, the battle that's happening at Leetown, it basically just dissolves at that point because the men don't know that McCall is dead. They don't know that McIntosh is dead. And the third, the guy that was third in command didn't know he was actually in command and he's been captured. The command here has essentially been decapitated, basically. Yeah, right, right off the bat, Haybear's caught, William Mitchell's caught, William Tunnard's caught. You've got McCulloch dead. You know, you've got you've got McIntosh dead. And this no one wants and Pike to be in together. command. Mass hysteria situation. Yeah. And they don't like Pike. So this, to your point, it's a huge, huge loss. They're completely cut off. It, Haber's attack at this point is done. It's over. So he, they're going to ultimately fall back to Foster's Farm in the woods, and they get back, and they are pissed. You know why? Because two-thirds of McCulloch's guys are still sitting there idle, and not one junior officer took the initiative to move forward. They just said, fuck this. Do I stand? They watched these guys get 
pummeled in the woods and they come back and they find out that the leadership is gone and they just sat there. So, so basically the lead town part of the battle is over. So yeah. a battle that, that like mostly civil war battles never should have happened. So it's about 4 PM. This is going on, but the battle is just getting started because the other side of it's already been going. We'll talk more about that over at Elkhorn Tavern. Yeah. So that's where we're going to head over to now. So while Lee town is happening, there's also Elkhorn Tavern starts happening a little bit after it starts. So Colonel Eugene Carr is sent here to intercept the enemy force at Telegraph Road and Timber Hollow. So he sets his troops up so they're able to look down into Timber Hollow and he is just waiting for the Rebs to come to him. That's exactly what he's going to do. So Sterling Price's division approaches from the north on Telegraph Road and it is led by none other than Earl Van Dorn. It's 5,000 men, 10 artillery batteries. Again, the Union is outnumbered here. Right, and Curtis is going to send two forces to try to stop him. He's got Osterhaus still in Lee Town. He's still dealing with them. But he has a guy named Eugene Carr, the 4th Division. He's going to send him towards Telegraph Road to try to disrupt the other half. Eugene Carr is an interesting cat. He's from New York. He's got a reputation of being a prick. Arguments, doesn't like authority. He's a fighter. Typical New Yorker, all around, right? And so... But he's a West Pointer. He's a member of the regular army. He's not a volunteer, so he's got some cachet to him. He's going to basically be told, go intercept that rebel force on Telegraph Road. Um, But here's where Curtis screws up, though, Mary. He only sends half of his 4th Division. He doesn't give all of them. He sends half because he thinks he's thinking it's going to be an easy fight because why why wouldn't it be, right? So Carr's 4th Division, it's about 11 o'clock in the morning. So this is kind of, well, everything's kind of getting underway at Leetown. His 1st Brigade is about 1,400 guys, guys from Iowa, Illinois, Missouri. He's got the 1st Independent Iowa Cavalry, the Light Battery. To your point, they get to Elkhorn Tavern. They overlook that cross timber hollow. It's a deep gorge. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's not an easy thing to climb. This is where Carr goes against his own reputation. He does, he's not aggressive here. He's going to set up. He's going to let them dictate the battle, and he's going to yep. fight defense. It's a huge mistake in a way, but it's very unlike Carr based on his reputation. Yep. But Van Dorn does something that's very unlike him too. Mm-hmm. So far in this campaign, Van Dorn has been very much about speed. But when he sees what's happening you know, at Elkhorn Tavern and he sees Carr's men set up, he has Price stop and start to be cautious. And that is very much like not very characteristic of Van Dorn overall, but especially in this campaign, he's been about being aggressive. He's been about speed. He has Price halt and get ready for battle. And Price's battle line that he makes is very irregular mm-hmm. as well. I think I think a lot of why he stalled though was I think because he still didn't know McCullough was even in battle. I no. think he, he was expecting McCullough to show up at any time. Yeah, I he has no he idea wanted, Lee Town is happening. He wants the whole band to be together. And so he's like, well, he's coming. He's going to be here at any time. So let's just, let's just chill. It reminds me a little bit of Longstreet waiting for a Vandal Law to come from, yeah. you know, those Alabamans at Gettysburg a little bit, right? Yeah, this might be the for... worst communication in the Civil War right here at P. Oh, Rich. Water. They have no idea have what the fuck's been, going have on. Have you been to Arkansas, the internet in Arkansas? No, it's, it's terrible there. So. <laughs> no idea what's going on. You know, Van Dorn, yeah, he chooses caution because he's, you know, he's waiting, sets up that battle ridge, but he's also puts himself in a really shitty position because mm-hmm. he's, he puts himself in that hollow. So when they do move forward, they've got that stiff incline, that slope. Carr, meanwhile, he's sitting up there looking at him going, hey, look all those guys down there. He can see the whole line setting up from the high point at Elkhorn Tavern. Mm-hmm. But he's like, what? Because he didn't expect large force either. He thought it was going to be a small group. Don't forget, he only had half of his fourth division because he thought it, they thought it was going to be easy. Yep. So he knows 
oh god, I'm completely out friggin' numbered here. Now he doesn't know about McCullough either, so he doesn't know he doesn't know what the heck's going on with this. So Carr's like, well, I guess we're gonna stay and fight. And this is where he becomes aggressive. Well, first he asks Curtis for reinforcements. He wants the other half of his division, but he stands up and he yells, "Give him hell, boys! Don't let them have it their way. Give him hell!" So he's gonna actually take some of those Iowa guns I mentioned, that independent first light artillery, and he's gonna move them down the slope to cut down that angle mm-hmm. because you, you're you shoot it over him. So you got to bring the guns at a lower level because that parabolic curve, you know, you, you want to get the guns down. But Carr himself is going to go down with the guns, right? He's going to be right in the front line. So they start opening fire and the Rebs are surprised. They, they're like, what? So they get stopped cold and they, they're confused. They're like, what the hell's going on here? Because they, they don't expect this battle to happen. Now, they will respond and they will, their artillery will get going and they will turn the battle. Numbers do dictate how these things work out. Carr gets wounded. He'll also get a Medal of Honor for yep, this. Yep, wounded too, three times. It, you know? um, and he manages but, to immobilize Price for two hours, two which hours. is pretty remarkable. Again, this fighting is a lot like day one at Gettysburg, you know, with how smaller numbers. It's it's funny how it is, though. Like how smaller numbers are able to. It's a lot like Gettysburg, too, as as this battle winds up. But like smaller numbers are able to immobilize the larger force for a couple hours until reinforcements can arrive, right? Van Dorn's going to basically, you know, he's confused because he sees Carr and he sees how aggressive he is with those small numbers. So he's like, what's going on? So so he puts his guys in a defensive position, but he's expecting McCullough to show up at any time. So he's like, well... Let's just ride it out. He's going to be coming down that Ford's Road any minute with his guys. We're going to be in good shape. But that's a huge mistake to wait. Because what happens is by waiting, it allows Curtis to send that other half of the 4th Division. So now he's going to get more guys. And so they're going to get reinforced at about 2 p.m. He's going to get about 1,000 more guys. He's going to get Colonel William Vandever, Baltimore guy. He's going to get the 9th Iowa and the 25th Missouri. And he's going to get more guns. So he's going to get more guys to even the numbers out. The Rebs are still going to have a numerical advantage, though. But it's more balanced. He's going to basically have Vandever or Colonel Greenville Dodge, another guy, to basically at this point launch an infantry attack on those rebel positions. Mm-hmm. So they're going to go down those hills. And what's going to be cool about it is they're going to do, they're going to run down the hill, fight, and then back up again. And they're going to go back and forth and back and forth. And what's going to happen is it's going to fill that hollow full of smoke, right? And smoke in these battles with large numbers is the great equalizer. Because now the Rebs, they can't see anything now. Mm-hmm. So now it's kind of balancing the numbers out a little bit. Neither side can see. But Carr is the one who doesn't have to see because he's the one who's, who's more aggressive. He's not playing defense. Sterling Price is going to get shot at this point. He's yep. going to get hit in the arm. But you can see the Confederates kind of, they're going to make a big push here in a few minutes. But you can see that command and control falling apart again like it did on the other side of the, the, other side of the battlefield. Yeah. And so what Van Doren does is at this point, there's kind of a little bit of change in the command structure so he has Price, even though he's been wounded, he's going to command the left wing and Little is going to command the right wing, but Van Dorn's going to stay near him on the Telegraph Road. So basically the structure's been split into two wings. One man in Price's division said the musketry was extremely heavy and surpassed in severity anything our men had yet experienced. Pretty horrific battle that these guys are going through. And it's again, it's early in the war. But around this time, too, once this structure changes on the Confederate side, the Union line a quarter mile west of Elkhorn Tavern, it begins to crumble. Well, what happens is they don't have guys, but Carr makes a big mistake with this. What he does 
is he basically concentrates his lines. He squeezes it. So mm-hmm. instead of being long, he basically bends it around like a pretzel. And by doing that, he exposes his entire flank. So what happens is he's going to get flanked by the second and third Missouri Confederates on his on Carr's left flank. They're going to get mm-hmm. around him. It's going to make it easier for the Rebs. So that, that's kind of a tactical mistake he did. And now Van Dorn is going to call an assault on Carr's constricted line. He's going to go all out on it. But you know what? The, what's going to happen? This is where you get lucky, right? Yep. They've got one hour of daylight left. So the sun is setting again on, on so many of these battles. So Carr finds himself basically completely surrounded on Pease Ridge at this point. Price is going to, to your point, he's going to take him in the left wing. You know, Little's going to take him, really be in the middle is kind of where he's going to be. He's going to oversee the right wing and Van Dorn's going to stay, stay in the center and give orders because Little's, I don't think he has a confidence in Little, so he, he stays no, near him. No, that's why Van Dorn stays near him. I think he doesn't, right. like, he feels Little doesn't have the experience. Um, but even Price, yeah. though, being wounded, apparently that really affected how he was able to command his troops yeah it's natural she has shot in the arm you don't want to be there anymore at that point but the first and second and third missouri they're going to move forward but they're going to be slow by that terrain we talked about they've got to go up that slope they're all going at a different pace i mean think about like these guys going up a hill you assume that they're all going they're all piecemeal they're all going up the hill they get to about 100 yards away from from the union lines and the soldiers talk about the musketry how brutal it was it just ends up being a huge firefight for about a half an hour at close range. You know, the Rebs basically getting late in the day, probably five thirty, six o'clock or so. They start to get driven back down the hill again. They have the number superiority. Yeah. They're running out of gas. I mean, they're going up a steep hill. They yeah. Just, Both you know, sides are tired at this point. And at 630, like Curtis does order a counterattack, but he recalls his men soon after dark and he falls back to a new defensive position and then a man named uh, Asboth arrives with another 1,000 men to reinforce Carr. Asboth is actually Hungarian. This is a very international battle that's happening, too. Yeah, Alexander Asboth. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that. I mean, you, you talk about, you know, Franz Siegel yeah. and you know, all, all of those guys. So it's a very international thing. Curtis, to your point, does abandon that little Sugar Creek position. He's like, you know, we're not fighting here anymore. Mm-hmm. This, we'll, we'll be fighting up here. So he moves all of his forces, including those who are still at Lee Town. He moves them up uh, to reinforce Carr's position, just spreads out the food. But it does cause the darkness does cause confusion. Franz Seal gets lost in the dark. He Mary. goes in circles all yep. night. Yeah, he's, I mean, <laughs> he does. But the one thing Curtis does that is really good is he's able to distribute food and ammo to his troops that night to get right. them ready for the fight the next day. The thing that happens to the Confederates on this night is someone is like, "Where are the supply trains?" And Van Dorn's like, "Uh, I, they're like six miles back or whatever." And Again, nobody knows what's happening. So these troops don't get food other than what they've right. brought with them. So if they've ate it, they're fucked, basically. They're not going to get anything to eat that night. Miss that bacon now, Mary. Yeah. <laughs> but well, Van, so- Van Dorn had not thought to organize staff to take care of the supply trains, which are now sitting six miles away. And that's going to yeah. come back to bite his ass even more on March the 8th. Van Dorn's literally sitting at a campfire with, with Sterling Price. He finds out that McCulloch's dead. Yeah, that's when he finds out at the campfire, and then he goes, "Well, all right, well, let's resupply the army." Price, where are the supply wagons? I don't freaking know. <laughs> Nobody knows. And, what, and so, like, what? It's okay. Best part about it though is they find out that night. They don't think to have anybody go look for them until the next morning. They go, well, "I'll go to bed. We'll deal with it in the morning." You think they'll go find this up? But they just nope. We'll wait. We we'll wait until the eighth. So, but Van Dorn still has this feeling of grandiose. He's still going to be the hero, right? Mm-hmm. So he's like, "Well, we got no food. You know, <laughs> we got we." 
they got no leadership, but I still want to go. I still want to fight. So yeah, tomorrow morning we're going to get up. We're going to beat Curtis that next morning. So yeah, and that's the next morning. Van Dorn does not attack at dawn like what Curtis had thought. Um, but Curtis will be the one to attack instead. But one thing I do want to mention here is that so Curtis Siegel's now arrived. Siegel is put in charge of the artillery. So he sends Osterhaus on a little bit of scouting, a scouting mission to find a good place to place the artillery. And Osterhaus comes back and he says, there are some rolling hills. I don't know that Rolling phrase. hills was okay. what I heard. Okay. It's funny because my notes say undulations, but okay. Yeah. No, rolling hills is where they're going to place this artillery. It had been scouted by Osterhaus, who chose the position of it. And this is going to be Franz Siegel's finest moment in the Civil War, is manning this artillery. Well, baby, Curtis, you know, to this point, still doesn't trust Siegel, because he knows Siegel wanted his job first and foremost. I mean, let's be honest, he took off from Wilson's Creek, and within six hours before he was lost in the freaking woods, took a wrong turn, ended up disappearing. So he's going to be in control of the federal artillery, and Siegel doesn't like it, but he's going to do it. He sets up west on the Telegraph Road, he's going to basically wait for the attack to begin. So there's going to be, when it does begin, there's going to be a two-hour cannonade, which is going to be the largest of the Civil War to this point. It is, I've heard that before. It's directed by Siegel. Over 3,600 rounds are fired, and it was apparently heard from 50 miles away. But then Siegel does like turn them at one point and starts firing into the woods as well. Regarding what happens here, it was one of the few times in the Civil War when a preparatory barrage effectively softened up the enemy position and paved the way for the victory. Two-hour assault, but unlike Gettysburg, which happens a couple years later, this one lands. I mean, there's a guy mm-hmm. named Captain Henry Cummings. It was the grandest thing I ever saw or ever thought of. You could hear the cannons as far away as Springfield. That's yeah. how far this one went. 3,600 rounds. Okay, that's 30 shots a minute or one shot every two seconds, yeah. Mary. That, I'm, the ma- I'm the math guy here, okay? Ooh. And so, ooh, you know, right off the bat, and, and it, the artillery decimates our position, just pounds it. So. It does. 10 o'clock in the morning, bombardment finally stops. They must have been so excited for this stupid thing to stop. Those rebel guns are silent. Eugene Payne, from a, a captain, says, it was the most beautiful charge. I shall never forget it. So it's like it's like a picket's charge mini, it is. right? Yep. So the entire Army of the Southwest becomes marching from their position at uh, at Roddick's Field, they weren't marching like pick a charge. They were running. They were sprinting. This was a charge, not a march. So the infantry charges across that field, bayonets charging towards those rebel lines. We're talking thousands converge in Elkhorn Tavern from the west and south on Pea Ridge. So it was, it was a complete mess. Van Dorn says, you know what? Nope. So he orders a withdrawal from Elkhorn Tavern. He says, this isn't going to work. It turns into a complete rout. Yep. Van Dorn, he, him and Price go, this looks pretty dangerous. We're going to get the hell out of here. So they jump on their horses yeah. and take off. They do. The, <laughs> the other hilarious. reason they do that, too, is because they haven't bothered to go for those trains during the night to look for them. And they yep. start running out of ammo. And when someone says to Van Dorn, we are running out of ammo. And Van Dorn realizes it's six hours away. Or not six hours away. The trains have been finally discovered. They are six miles away. And that's when he's like, fuck this. We're well, they done. See the, they see the Huntsville Road. And they go, hey, Sterling, where do you think this road goes? Let's go check it out. Yep. So they, they have them going. <laughs> they have a my the people sol- need me moment. The soldiers are still fighting. And he's going to take off. He's going to go. The Rebs, now they have no leadership. They're, now it turns into a mass fleet. They're running in every single yep. direction. Com- they're completely abandoned by their leaders. Curtis basically shakes hands with Franz Siegel at Elkhorn Tavern. And he's riding up the line on his horse yelling, victory, victory. So Curtis is waving his hat. You can only imagine how that must have gone. It ends really. It ends in a very, very decisive victory for the North. And 
And when you look at some of the aftermath with this, what it does, the Rebs lost Missouri and Northern Arkansas to the feds. They never regained it for the rest of the war. They never, they never no. got it back. Van Dorn's plan to capture St. Louis, to control Missouri, to link up at Albert City Johnson is completely dashed at this point. And you know who's pissed is his soldiers are pissed at him. Van Dorn. They feel so, abandoned. You know, um, well, there's a quote, right? There's a guy named James Rains. He's one of his brigadier generals. He says within he makes sure this is afterwards. He's with an earshot of Earl Van Dorn, and he says to him, he says to one of his subordinates, you know, um, someone says, "Well, we whipped at P Ridge," and Rains goes to, with an earshot of, of of Van Dorn and says, "By God, nobody was whipped at P Ridge except Van Dorn," and points at him. Van Dorn responds by having him arrested or saying that for insubordination, you know, so for just just disrespecting him. So this basically is the glory that he wanted. He didn't get exactly the complete opposite. The soldiers after the battle said we didn't lose the battle. He did Mm -hmm. him personally, not only his soldiers, but his brigadier generals did because they knew it was a failed plan. And they saw him run. Yeah, and he exactly. Never, he never, he never got forgiven for that. Well, and just the supply train thing too, right? Like, why would you not? Like, you're supposed to have staff for a reason. He's banking so much on a victory. He's like, "Fuck the supply trains." You know, we'll leave them back here. And then even he doesn't know where they are. And then they're discovered six miles away, which is by that point it's too little, too late. So he has a, you know, evacuates the dance floor. And leaves his troops behind, right? Curtis, actually, after the battle, wrote this. This is what he had to say. He said, the scene is silent and sad. The vulture and the wolf now have the dominion and the dead friends and foes sleep in the same lonely graves. So as much as Curtis is happy about the victory, he's also, you know, he's seeing like the aftermath of the battle too, like all the like all the bloodshed that happened, right? It's, it's just one of those things where you see a situation where, you, where bravado takes over, right? So it, it was more of a situation where he saw Pea Ridge in Missouri and St. Louis as not a victory for the Confederates, but a victory for him. Mm-hmm. It was, a, I mean, this is a guy who, West Point guy, very cocky, very arrogant. He was a you know cavalier in Virginia, yeah. and he was someone, well, he did some things later on, Holly Springs and a lot of the stuff, but at the end of the day, he wore the L hard on this one. Oh, yeah. And he, he, he never recovered from this. Now, obviously, his women caught up with him yeah because who knows what like you know had he not been shot like i mean he has a lot of success at holly springs right you know had he not been shot when was it like may of 1863 maybe he would have had more successes because he seems to be pretty good in the cavalry he's just not very good at command and he got really arrogant and i think ballsy in this battle and just shot himself in the foot right yeah i mean he was his own worst enemy in a lot of ways but I mean, I think to a strength of his, though, is when if you're a soldier, right, or you're a junior officer, you want to see your commander confident, right? Mm-hmm. But you don't want to see him reckless. He went against his orders, well, the advice of his two subordinates. One of them was killed. His plan was one that he probably was not, was very ill thought out, but yeah. he wanted to do it because he knew if it worked, he was going to be the hero the way Grant was a hero at Donaldson. And I think that's that's what he was thinking. We talk a lot before about some of these other guys, about aspirations afterwards. And he's somebody who had a lot of aspirations in his own head. But he just didn't, like many of these guys, he just didn't have the goods. You know, he had had the want, but he didn't have the means. And that's Mm. what ultimately got him. Yep, exactly. This this battle battle was one that the Confederates never recovered from. It had long-term effects. We mentioned before how it affected the Battle of Shiloh, which will be coming up soon. Yep. 
So you think about all the negativity. We talked before a few, a few weeks ago, Mary, about Fredericksburg, about how all the shit that was going on in December of 1862 with Lincoln and with going on with, with all the bad stuff. This is all the bad stuff going on for the Confederacy now. So they've lost the Trans-Mississippi. Yep. They've lost Fort Donaldson. They lost, and they're, gonna, they're about to lose Shiloh. And so you can see all the success they were having in the East it was being offset by losses in the West. And it's these battles. We talk about that domino thing all the time. Yep. It's these battles that are why, to quote, the West was won by the Union. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just the domino effect it has, you know, too. Like, I'm sure Van Dorn might be feeling a little bit of pressure to get this victory, too. And, you know, so that's probably why he's all like, I'm going to get this, like, being really arrogant about it because of Henry and Donaldson. That is a huge loss for the Confederates. So they need this victory. They need St. Louis. They need to take Missouri back, right? And they're not able to do it. He wanted St. Louis badly. He yep. wanted the ability to say he took St. Louis. He was They were pissed that they lost St. Louis. But he wanted to be the one who got it back. Yeah. And he wanted to be that guy because they were still jockeying for position about who was going to be leading in the West out there. I mean, Albert City Johnson, he had that 700-mile line. I mean, mm -hmm. you needed someone to take control. Yep. Jefferson Davis ultimately picked him because of his West Point. That's the only reason why he got picked to do that. But it was an, there was an opportunity there, and he was going to take it. He chose poorly, as the guy <laughs> says in that movie. It didn't work out too, too well for him. So Pea Ridge, at the end of the day, ended up being a huge, huge union victory at the right time. It really strengthened the, that Trans-Mississippi to the point that the Confederates never recovered. And it really paved the road for Grant to do his thing, mm -hmm. which paved the road for Sherman to do his thing and ultimately win the war. Exactly. Well, now we have covered every single theater of the Civil War. We have. So I think the Trans-Mississippi is a good one that gets very, like we said at the very beginning, this is very underappreciated. But I think as people study it, they realize that it's one of those filler ones that connects A to B. Yeah, it's right in the middle, but you have to get to B from A. And if you don't have a P Ridge, there's no guarantee you're going to get there. And so, if the Rebs would have controlled Missouri and controlled that, then you would have had to leave more. You would have had to leave more troops at Cairo. Mm -hmm. You would have had less guys to go on the Tennessee expedition. Yep, so fight at Shiloh. It, all, it it all plays into it. All these battles play into it. Yep. And P Ridge was one that is a Union had to have, and they had it because they couldn't afford to lose it. Yep. And they got it. And I mean, the MVP in this battle for me is definitely Franz Siegel. Yeah. Okay. I've gone back and forth with this one. Part of me, I think, I think the MVP for me is going to be Eugene Carr. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't want to give credit to New York to a New Yorker, Mary. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> okay. But I think he was the one who held off a, a stronger force because he had the high ground. He was aggressive when he had to be. He backed off when he had to be. He was smart enough to ask for more guys mm -hmm. and not try to do it himself. I think he's my MVP for this one. As far as goats go, I mean, you could just pick one. I mean, this, you can pick anyone you want. I mean, Van Dorn. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I think Persona he's the biggest Nungrad one. Persona is probably Van Dorn in this. Well, McCullough, Ben McCullough, he, you know, he rode up there and got, his, got himself shot. Yep. And then McIntosh made it worse by getting – there's a whole bunch. I think it goes back to the overall fact that when you have subordinate generals like McCulloch and Price who don't get along, yep. and you see it through all these battles. When these guys don't get along, it always affects the battle. We saw it with Henry Donaldson. We see it again here. We saw it with Gettysburg, with Lee and Longstreet. All these battles, when, when there's some sort of personal animosity at always takes the bigger it picture does. out and this one clearly did and there's no doubt it did oh, so. absolutely did all right well what's coming next what's next so next week we are going to be talking about battle of bentonville 
which is going to be part two of our Carolinas campaign episode. That is going to be our first three-parter, actually, because we're going to be ooh, revisiting threesome. it. Yes, it's our, ooh, <laughs> our threesome. <laughs> And that's going to be a good anyway. episode. I think that'll be a fun one. I think it's always nice. We haven't done North Carolina in a while. We haven't really talked about any, a lot of battles in North Carolina. Yeah. This, this will be a good one. Yeah. So we'll have fun with that. Yeah. Oh, oh, definitely makes an appearance in this one, I think. Oh, you know. Yeah. You know. Oh, and then we, and then after that, we are going to be doing the first battle at Kernstown. We will be having our St. Patrick's Day roundtable because our roundtable is going to be falling on St. Patrick's Day. So we've got some fun stuff planned for you guys for that night so if you've never attended our roundtable before send us an email info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com and we will send you the zoom invite it's going to be start at six o'clock on saint patrick's day and we'll go a little bit longer that night we'll I think. go until we'll, we'll go until, yeah. until ryan diamond falls down we'll go we'll go <laughs> Poor so ryan we'll, we'll have a fun we'll have a good time with that but the, to, to mary's point there'll be some fun some fun stuff we're gonna be doing that night yep. so we'll have a good time with that book club is coming up down the pike as well yeah, march 31st um, we'll also be covering the battle of five forks we're having a good time you know some good shad we'll have for that yeah one, right? shad bake i'm sure pickett knows how we'll to cook that, that. No, he certainly will. Certainly will. <laughs> anyway, so I think it was a good episode. I think it's a fun thing to, to study. I think always, you know, every battle matters, Mary. Every battlefield matters. And so this is one, again, without P. Ridge, it's hard to say what happens with, with Shiloh. Mm-hmm. If, if Shiloh doesn't happen, it's tough to see what happens with Grant. So it, it, there's a, so, many, so much goes into this. Yeah. So definitely a fun study. Definitely a lot of fun to talk about, to dust off the old P. Brain on the old P. Ridge and find out um, – how this whole thing plays itself out and talk about some people we haven't really talked about before, yep. like Albert Pike and guys like, you know, sit those guys. So it's, it's fun to talk about these guys. It so. is. All right. Well, I guess that's it for this episode 29, yeah, right? 29. We next week is 30. Oh, wow. Life begins at 30. Huh? Yeah. So here we go. All right. Well, Mary, it was a pleasure as always. Always a good time to talk about this. Yeah. So we look forward to the live on Saturday. Look forward to the other fun and games we have coming down the pike. So yeah. off we go into the wild blue yonder, into the next thing where we talk about Bensonville. And we end up back in the East Coast talking about Sherman and Grant and O.O. Howard and all the fun and games that takes place in North Carolina. Have a great night, everybody, or actually should say great day because it's Saturday when you're listening to this. Have a safe weekend and we will look forward to talking to you soon. See y'all later. Peace out.